In pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential. 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 Jesus House for All Nations. This message has been recorded live at Jesus House for All Nations. God bless you. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for the multitude of your mercies. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the entrance of your word brings light. And we thank you for illumination um, as we share your word, as we bring a message to encourage and to exhort. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen. Amen. This will be the fourth part in a series that we started uh, weeks ago. Um, the series is titled, uh, Oh God, Who Am I? And really, it's a series that we're believing will lead us to rediscovering our identity. We believe very strongly that the problems we face in the world, the challenges, the, 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 the situations that we face on a day-to-day -day basis that have arisen as a, result, as a result of the problems that exist are really at the core an identity problem, that, that the world is really going through an identity crisis. Uh, and the, 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 the purpose of this series is to help us regain, rediscover our identity. Who exactly did God create us to be and who exactly are we? Because if we don't, then we will function in capacities or as people who we are not. And the results are there for us to see. Uh, the pain that is caused, the hurt that is caused, the grief that is caused. Uh, the things that we see that sh sh definitely have nothing to do with God, but are the result of a fallen, broken, and dysfunctional world. And we end up hurting ourselves, end up hurting others, and we see the, the outworking of it, where we see husbands turn on wives, wives turn on children, uh, we see people turn on each other, we see young people stabbing uh, other young people on the streets, young people being disrespective, parents abusing those children that are entrusted into their care. Uh, we see the, the distrust that exists in the world, the greed, the avarice, the, the pursuit of material things. Um, we see the complete breakdown of institutions like that, uh, that outside in the world, like the institution of, uh, institution of marriage. We see the confusion over who we are, uh, sexual confusion. Uh, we, with just a lot of confusion, and we realize that it is the result of an identity crisis. And we're hoping that this teaching will shed some light and get us on the journey to rediscovering our identity. In part four of this series, we want to look at what I call a classic attack. You know, how does the enemy rob a person of his identity? How does the enemy steal our identity? How does the enemy commit this massive crime, this, this heist that he committed uh, that has got us, the world, into the place that we find ourselves? And the, a classic Attack. I have taken for my text, my example, 
for, for, for this, this teaching this afternoon. Uh, the scriptures in Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 1 to 10. Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 1 to 10. Um, I would have loved to read it in the Passion Translation as well as the New King James Translation, just for emphasis. But let's just read the New King James Translation, uh, and we might, we might pick out a few things from the Passion Translation. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 10. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Amen. That's the text for our teaching, um, a story that we all know. Literally at the start of Jesus' ministry, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days, um, and at the end of the fast, he has an encounter with Satan, a classic attack of Satan. Um, Satan comes against him with words and thoughts, trying to insert them into his mind to create confusion as to who he was. And on three occasions, he stands against Satan and he rebukes Satan, eventually coming out victorious. And for the next two parts, today and, and, and part five, we want to see what we can learn from him so that whenever we are faced with these situations where the enemy comes to attack us with the, with, the, with the intention of stealing our identity, sowing confusion into our minds, we learn from our role model Jesus and we, can, we know what to do to end up victorious and to overcome. Now, for us to learn like we should, there is a foundational truth that we must establish in our minds. Is foundational or fundamental to really how we read the Bible and how we receive from the Bible, especially as it relates to Jesus Christ. And that truth is that Jesus was operating in his human nature. Why is it so important? It is important because if we don't understand this, then a lot of times when Jesus does something as an example to us to help us understand that you also can do it. Our thinking is going to be that this is God, so God can do it, and I don't have the capacity to do it. So we must understand that as the Chalcedonian Creed says, and this creed came out of the early early fathers of the church getting together 
to deal with this issue of incarnation, that Jesus is both God and man because this is fundamental to our faith. You and I must understand these five truths that come out of this creed. Number one, that Jesus has two natures. He is God and he is man. He is both divine, having a divine nature, and he has a human nature. So Jesus operates in the divine and the human. He has both natures. He is both God and he is both man. He, both, he has a divine nature and he has a human nature. What we see in this uh, text of this classic attack is Jesus operating fully in his human nature. It wasn't God operating. It was Jesus in his human nature. And that's why you and I are encouraged because if Jesus could overcome in his human nature, he was just like you and I, only without sin, then you and I can overcome. Can someone say amen to that? And so the first truth is that he has two natures. The second truth is that he is fully God and fully man. And this is important. When Jesus is not some complex mix, he is fully God with all the attributes of God, but of a deity and of the deity of God himself. So when he operates in the divine, he is completely God. But then when he operates in his human nature, he is fully man. He is exactly like you and I, just without sin. The only difference of him in his human nature is that he is without sin. But apart from that, he is like you and I. He is fully man. The third truth to understand is that each nature is distinct. This is important because some people think sometimes he mixes the nature the, the natures, so that he is sometimes 60% God and 60% man as he operates. No, the natures are fully distinct. They don't mix to create some sort of third hybrid. They don't change one another. They retain their individual properties. It is fully God and fully man, and they are distinct. The fourth truth is that even though he has two natures that flow out of him, on a higher plane as Christ, he is only one person. So he has two natures, but he is one person, Jesus Christ. And the fifth truth to understand is that things that are true of any of the expressions of his nature, whether divine or human, are true of Christ. So if I could describe it in this way, there's Christ and there's an expression in two natures, divine and and human. Now, everything that is true of any, of any of his expressions of his nature are true of Christ. Now, why is this important? Because Christ needs to be able to say, I did it. I felt it as Christ, even though the expression was in my human nature. So how many know that it isn't possible for God to be hungry? How many know that? But how many know that Jesus was hungry? So that was not Jesus, God, Christ as the divine. It was in his human nature. But then as Christ, he felt that hunger. That's why he could pay a price for you and I. Because as Christ, he could say, I did it. Now, God doesn't die. He died in his human nature. But as Christ, so that the price could be paid, 
he could say, I did this. Those five truths are actually fundamental because otherwise you read this story and see the encounter he had with Satan and somewhere in your mind you will disqualify yourself from ever getting to a place where you are constantly overcoming, where you are victorious, what the Bible calls more than a conqueror. Can someone say amen? Now the nature of the attack, if you read that scripture, was classic Satan. It was sly, it was deceitful, it was scheming, it was manipulative, and it was vicious. He actually went for the jugular. I mean the audacity of that attack, that Satan actually thought he could rob the Son of God of his own identity. He taunted Jesus and hoped that he would taunt Jesus into doing something that would be against God, literally into sinning. And it was critical that Jesus overcame and came out of that battle without sin. If not, he couldn't be a savior for you and I. It was a classic attack of Satan. So manipulative that even when he quoted scripture and quoted it correctly, Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, that's the scripture he quoted in, that, in, in Matthew 4 verse 6, he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And he goes on. This is Satan. He quotes the scripture. For it is written, he will give his angels charge over you, and they will bear you up on their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He could have ended by saying, Psalms 91, verses 11 and 12. But then the reason that Jesus overcame him was Jesus knew that the scripture is quoted for an ulterior motive. It is to encourage me and propel me into sin. The scripture is correct, but God did not intend that it should be used like this. He didn't intend that I should flaunt my power. That's what Satan was saying to him. And the moment he got, Jesus flaunted his power, he would have committed sin. Satan was taunting him. Isn't that what your God says? He says that if you're his son, then show me you're his son. Throw yourself down and his angels will take charge over you. How many know that a lot of us would have fallen for it? Really? You want me to show you I'm the son of God? Well, I'm the son of God. Here I go, I throw myself, and the angels will take charge over me. But then Jesus knew that he's taunting and he's mocking and he's pushing so, so that I can flaunt my power. And my, I'm not meant to flaunt my power. And so Jesus says to him in verse 7, it is also written, you shall not tempt, test, thoroughly or try exceedingly the Lord your God. He says, yeah, I'm the son of God. He knew who he was. You know, what Satan was saying to him, if you're the son of God, prove to me you're the son of God. Now, most people would say, really? I'm going to prove to you I'm the son of God. And the moment you say that, you have lined up with him because you're telling him that I'm, I want to show you who I am. But if I know who I am, I don't have to prove to you who I am because I know who I am. Can someone say amen? And what was the purpose of the attack? Why did he, want to, why did he attack Jesus? Because if we know why he attacked Jesus, if we know why he attacked Eve and Adam and Eve, then we know why he's attacking us. The purpose was simple. It was to steal his identity. It was a heist, a theft, identity theft of the, of the, of the an amazing identity theft. He wanted to just steal his identity. If Jesus had succumbed to the temptations and sinned, he would have lost his identity as the Son of God, for the Son of God simply cannot sin. 
And that was it. Satan was after his identity. I, is there where I can make him sin? Can I make him bow down to me and worship me and break the word of God that says only God should we worship? Can I make him feed his flesh against the word of God and just concentrate on the, the possession of something that will feed his body and sin against God? Is there a way I can make him show off flaunt his power and sin against God. And the moment he did that, because it was not possible for the Son of God to sin, the, if Jesus had succumbed, he would have lost his identity. And so the aim was really not just to steal his identity, but the aim was to steal his purpose. Because if he lost his identity, then he could not fulfill purpose. And so when Satan comes against you and I, he's really looking at purpose. That somehow, if I can cause this dysfunction, make the person sin, the person can't fulfill God's plan for that person's life. The person will function as somebody who's dysfunctional, trapped by the sin. But then it wasn't even just ending there. He was ultimately going after God's plan. What do you think was Satan's, Satan's intention when he attacked Jesus? The intention was the salvation plan. Because Satan knew he's the savior of the world. If I can get him to sin, he can't fulfill his purpose. His purpose is to be the savior of the world. And if he doesn't fulfill his purpose, then I can truncate God's plan. So it, it was an attack against God's plan, God's agenda. And so when Satan comes against you and I with these attacks, he really is after God's plan. Because didn't you know that you are a part of God's plan? That God wants to use you to fulfill his agenda on earth. That you are here as an agent of God to fulfill God's agenda. And if every one of us is fulfilling God's agenda, together we can fulfill the totality of God's plan. So Satan is after destroying God's plan and God's agenda. And he knows that the one way to do that is to create an identity crisis. Can someone say amen to that? But then there's encouragement. The encouragement is that these attacks, in whatever form they come, that are to rob a person of their identity, to ensure a person doesn't fulfill purpose, to ultimately ensure that God's plan and God's agenda for the world does not go exactly how God wants it to. The encouragement is that none of these can happen without God's knowledge and God's permission. Isn't it instructive that it was the Spirit of God, verse 1 of chapter 4, that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It was God himself that allowed it. It was God that permitted it. Frankly, in Jesus' case, God led him into the wilderness for the sole purpose of facing the enemy in this encounter. So my sister, take, be encouraged. It's not happening outside God's knowledge. God knows. And not only does God know, Lamentations, the third chapter and the 37th verse, helps us understand that God actually permitted it. Satan is not going around doing whatever he wants. No. God allows it. God allowed it. 
God is in absolute control of his world. But even though God allowed it, allowed the tempter to tempt Jesus, on no condition must we ever think that God tempts us. Because God does not tempt with evil. He is never the source of temptations. James 1 verse 13, the Passion Translation, when you are tempted, don't ever say, God is tempting me. For God is incapable of being tempted by evil, and he is never the source of temptation. He might use the enemy as an examiner to promote you, but he is never the source of the temptation. It's God is just not capable of it. It's important to understand that so that you get the whole picture. So the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, but the enemy is the tempter. Amen? So why then does God allow it? Why does God allow you to go through what you're going through? Why does God allow these battles, these trials, these, these difficulties that are challenging our minds? Why does God put us in a place where we have to fight the lies of Satan, fight these thoughts that Satan is throwing at us? Why does God allow it? Why does God run what I call a risk in terms of us human beings? Certainly in terms of Jesus, he knew it wasn't a risk. And later, I'll explain to you why the risk has been mitigated. Uh, it's insured. There's an insurance policy against the risk. It's just that a lot of us haven't taken, up the, taken out the policy fully. Some of us have taken portions of it. But we'll get to that in the, towards the end um, of the series. But why does God allow it? Well, the answer is very simple. God allows it for your good. Paul understood this. So this is what Paul says in Romans, the 8th chapter. And the 28th verse, the Amplified Classic Version. He says, we are assured and know. You know, those are powerful words. Assured and know. You know what that means? It's a settled matter. I am assured and I know. It is settled in my mind. That God being a partner in their labor, all things. Somebody say with me, all things. Go and say it boldly. One more time, declare it. Not some things. Not a few things. Not some days. But all things work together and are fitting into a plan for good to and for those who love God and are called according to his design and purpose. What is Paul saying? That there is a plan that this attack, this challenge, this encounter, this trial that I'm facing, this excruciating pain that I'm going through, this challenge with my health, this difficulty with my finances that is trying to attack my mind and make me not realize that I am the blessed of the Lord. This difficulty, this, this attack, Paul says, Rest assured that it comes into the phrase all things and it is working together, it is fitting into a plan for good for two reasons. Because number one, I love God and I am called according to his design and purpose. So the thing we have to try and determine is do we love God and are we called according to his design and purpose? Then I can say to you it's working according to a plan. The Passion Translation says this, so we are 
convinced. And you have to be convinced about it. You don't hear it in one sermon and go away. No. You sit down, you study it, you read it, you meditate on it, and at some point you are convinced. The Bible would say you are fully persuaded. The challenge with the church is that a lot of us are in a very fickle state. We're not convinced about anything. And so the slightest attack, we break down because we're not convinced. And convinced doesn't just happen. No, it, it, it takes time to be convinced. You know, to convince me, I say to you, say it again. Say it again, let me hear. Then I say, say it again. Then when you go away, I think about what you said. I break it down. I spend time there until one day I wake up and I am convinced. And I am a completely different person because no matter what comes at me, I am convinced. I have an assurance. I know. The Passion Translation says that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. Unbelievable scripture. Every detail, my brother. Which means when you made a mistake and you thought it wasn't important, God's grace is enough to take that detail that was a mistake and fit it into a plan. When I did something 20 years ago, because God sees the end from the beginning, the grace of God is that what I did 20 years ago that I have forgotten has become part of the plan. Guess what? Everything I've done in my life, where I went to school, who I met, even the people who hurt me, the people who abused me, the people who wounded me, they have become part of God's plan as long as I love God and I'm called according to his purpose. God, I'm going to give God a clap offering. But then the question must still remain. Okay, I get it. There's a plan for good. It's working according to a plan. He's fitting in the details. My pain is not wasted because it's part of the detail. My tears are not wasted because it's part of the detail. My failure is not wasted because it's part of the plan. Can you beat that? My failure is part of the plan. You thought it was failure. God says that's stage one in the plan. But then what good is he working out? What good does it bring to our lives? James helps us understand what good. James 1 verses 2 to 4. He says, Consider it wholly joyful, my brethren, whenever you are enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort or fall into various temptations. Unbelievable scripture. Unbelievable scripture. Insanity, except we know something. The man is saying, when you encounter trials, difficulties, temptations, the man says, consider it not just joyful, wholly joyful. Guess what he's saying? They sacked me from the job. They, the company downsized and they wrote, they wrote off my job. Guess what he's saying? As you live there, most normal people who don't have Christ live there with their heads down, their backs bent, the future bleak. Guess what? As you're living, you're whistling and you're singing. Woo, woo, woo. And they say, what's wrong with you? Say, hey, you don't know what God is up to. The God that got me sent out of this company, you just wait and you'll see what God is up to because it is part of a plan. It's part of a plan. I have a divorce as part of my history. You just wait. 
God wasn't asleep when I was treated so badly by that man. You just wait. Why come you're smiling with what you're going through? Oh, I have some knowledge that James had. That there is a God in heaven who is working it out and in the end it is going to be good. It's a knowledge. I have an assurance about it. So really, what should happen when these things happen? Guess what we should do? We should call a party. People say, why are you celebrating? You just lost your job. Oh, just come to the party. Why are you celebrating? Because God told me that this is stage three of the plan. He's working out something. You don't know it. I don't know it. But I know he knows it. And that's okay for me. Can someone say amen to that? And so what is he working out? What's the good? He says, be assured and understand that the trial and proving of your faith brings out endurance and steadfastness and patience. But let endurance and steadfastness and patience have full play and do a thorough work. Now this is where he's going. So that you may be people perfectly and fully developed with no defects lacking in nothing. Where is he going? He's going to what matters to him. Because you see, the problem is that we lost our way. And so we don't know what we look like. So part of the journey of rediscovering our identity is he uses these trials to build our faith, our trust in him. And that faith makes us learn to endure. You know, we learn to, we learn to wait on him. We wait on him because we know he's faithful. He will do what he says he will do. So we are waiting on him faithfully. And then the outworking of, of all that is that we eventually arrive at a place where we are more like Christ. And, you know, Pentecostals think God is, God, God's primary aim is to bless us. That's secondary. His primary aim is to make us like Christ. And sometimes you go through some suffering and some trials because that class in this university is necessary for you to be formed more in the image of Christ. And at the end, he says, you arrive at a place where you've been through this trial, you've been through this testing, you've been through this attack, and you can now say to yourself, I am perfectly and fully developed with no defects lacking in nothing. Can someone say amen? amen. And the encouragement is that on the other side of every attack is a blessing. On the other side of that encounter, my sister, is a blessing. James says it in the 12th verse of that same chapter, James 1 verse 12. He says, blessed, happy, to be envied is the man who is patient under trial and stands up under temptation. For when he has stood the test and been approved, he will receive the victor's crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. I need a uh, hanky or something like that, please. And so James says that when a person has stood up under temptation, he arrives at a place where he receives the victor's crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Of course, he's talking about the eternal crown, but it also plays out in life. That's why when you come through a trial, how many know that you feel good? When you overcome a temptation, how many know that you, you actually pat yourself on the back? You know, when somebody has always provoked you, you've always lost your temper. They just had a way of winding you up. How many know that the day they come to wind you up and somehow, by God's grace, you don't get wound up, you don't lose your temper, you don't shout, you don't get angry. How many know when they leave, you feel good with yourself? Is, 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 is that true? Yeah? 
I mean, guys, guys, you, you know, you might have been there where, you know, there's, there's a girl who kind of just messes things up, you know. She just messes things up. Every time you come to church, then you see her, then you fall into sin and you're just tired of it. Then you pray, God, help me. I know it's not right. And so one, mod, one day you go to Susie's house and Susie tries all the things that she does before. You know, she touches you in the right place and, you know, she tells you the right things. She puts on the right movie, but somehow you hold yourself. So when Susie comes, you say, no, I can't do this anymore. I was in church on Sunday. Pierre was preaching about identity. This thing is messing my head up. I need to find who I am. Susie says, really? You believe all that thing Pierre is saying? You say, yeah, I believe it. It's from the Bible. That's what it is. Jesus, I can't do this, Susie, anymore. I can't do this anymore. And how many know when you live there and you're driving away in your car, you're singing to yourself, I'm a victor, I'm a conqueror, I've overcome. There's just a feel-good factor about it when you overcome. There's a feel-good factor when you don't succumb to materialism. When you know you shouldn't buy that bag and then it's on sale. And they've knocked off 40%, but you know you already have enough bag. Why are you laughing at yourself, ladies? <laughs> and how you walk by the store in Brent Cross, and the bag is saying, lie with me. <laughs> but somehow, you just remember, Pierre said we should not succumb to covetousness and greed. I don't want this bag. I already have six bags like it. I have it in all the other colors. And the thing is saying, lie with me. And then you go back to just take a look at it. And the thing is saying, come, 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 lie with me. But then you remember, and somehow, the word of God comes into your mind that you should not be covetous. And you say, I'm not going to be covetous. How many know when you get into the car, the fact you didn't buy that bag, you feel good with yourself. That's a victor's crown. You have been victorious. Can someone say amen? amen? And Satan is an expert at the timing of an attack. Why doesn't he come when you're prayed up? Why doesn't he come during pursuit of God? Have you noticed that during pursuit of God, he leaves you alone? Because you're fired up. You're ready for him. If he dares to show his face, you will deal with him. 21 days of fasting. Praying every day, listening to the word every day, men of God pouring into your life. In fact, you're looking for him. Well, Satan, where are you? And he says, no, 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 this is not the time to fight. So how come he always chooses when you are at your weakest and most vulnerable? He attacked Jesus when Jesus was tired, 40 days of fasting and hungry, physically exhausted. Because that was Jesus in his human nature. And very hungry. That's when he went after him. He attacked Elijah when Elijah had finished with the exertions on Mount Camel. 1 Kings, 1 Kings 19, 1 to 8. And Mount Camel had taken a lot out of Elijah. The, the, the battle with the 900 plus prophets of Baal. The holding on by faith and believing that fire will come. And eventually the, orchestrating the death, the killing of all those prophets. Elijah was a tired man, physically weak. He needed just to go and rest and be nourished. And guess what? That's when the enemy came against him. Just a simple message to him. This is a man that called down fire. Jezebel just sends a message to him. Just tell that man, may the gods kill me, strike me by this time tomorrow, if I have not killed him just as he killed my prophets. When Elijah heard, Fear sees the man. Now, how does fear enter the heart of a man who stood 
and dead 900 plus prophets. Now, how many know that if that fire had not come down, Elijah was going to be the sacrifice of their own fire? But he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's human. He's exhausted. He's, he's tired. And the enemy knows the weakest moments. And not just the weakest moments, the enemy also knows our weakest links. And so he comes against him. And Elijah runs, he runs so far that he gets to Beersheba. His servant is tired. I can't run any further. Elijah says, that's for you. This woman is going to kill us. I'm running some more. And after a while, he just sits under a tree. It's a pitiable picture of a man of God. He sits under a juniper tree and he says to himself, I am no better than my father's. I'm a mess. And then he gets suicidal thoughts. The enemy has inserted thoughts into his mind that you're no good. The enemy inserts thoughts into his mind that why don't you take your life? Just kill yourself. But thank God for God's grace. Because at that time, God reaches down and ministers to him, strengthens him. And it's instructive. I mean, this is a message for another day, when we, another sermon entirely. But let me just add this. Sometimes it is not binding and losing. It is rest and food. Yeah. Because there was no, God did not do any, there was nothing, there was no razzmatazz there. God just said, the man is physically tired. Is nothing, he, he can't fight Satan because he's physically tired. He needs to sleep, he needs to rest, and he needs to eat. So they, they sent angels, just go and feed this man. Because if you don't feed this man, he's finished. So the battle of the mind needed the body to be in a place where the body could respond to fight the battle of the mind. So for some of you, just sleep eight hours a night, seven hours a night. Just sleep. Sleep for three days. Take a break from work and go and rest. Go and walk by the sea and just rest. Go and find a beach somewhere. Find a room somewhere and just rest. And, you know, sometimes it's not fasting. The fasting has made you tired. Eat some food and strengthen your body. That's the message for another day. And then when you look at those examples, what, what, what about David's example? In the spring, the Bible tells us, 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 3. In the spring of the year when kings normally go to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Now, in that sentence, you understand why David got into trouble. When he should have been where he was supposed to be, where God had prepared provision and protection, he was at home and he sent others. You know a prayer I pray for you? that you will never be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. That God will always order your footsteps to the right place. Because some places are the wrong place. And the enemy knows. As soon as the enemy saw David, when kings were at war, it was the time when kings led their, their, their soldiers to battle. And David was luxuriating at home. The enemy said, we have him. And so the enemy got Bathsheba to have, a, to have a bath. Bathsheba to have a bath. And you know his timing? Have you thought about it? If David had delayed 30 minutes, he would have missed her on the roof. But the enemy orchestrated it. You have to see the wires of Satan. You go to a, you go to a dinner and there are 25 free seats. Ladies, listen to me. And the one you sit on is the one where the guy who is married next to you now suddenly decides he's interested in you. Uh, do you think that it was just like, 
You just found that seat? No. They've prepared the guy. And they orchestrated you to sit in the seat. If you're wise, once the guy starts talking and you see his ring on his finger, you will flee to another seat. Because he's orchestrated from the pits of hell. He understands the timing of the attacks. And the rest is history. David now falls into the, the, the downward spiral of sin. And the nature of sin is that if you don't cut it off, the nature... Please, can you hear what I have to say? Sin is wired to get progressively worse. Sin never stops. The aim is destruction. So it gets progressively worse. So he sees the woman. The thought is inserted into his mind. He does not have the capability to defend it. And we'll talk about defending it in part five. And so the, the thought bears fruit. He looks at her body. He likes her. He has power. He's the king. He summons her. She comes into his bedchamber. He sleeps with her. You know, when Satan is dealing with something, <laughs> you can sleep with a woman and she will not get pregnant. How come it is that once that David slept with her that that woman got pregnant? The timing was too perfect. And then she now gets pregnant. And when David is told, because you know sin must give birth to children, more sin, he now panics. And he decides to concoct a massive de deception. He actually wants to pass off the child as Uriah's child, her husband. And so he sends for Uriah, who is at the war front, where he sent him. And he stayed at home and allowed Uriah to risk his life for the nation. He sends for Uriah, and then he gets Uriah drunk, hoping that Uriah will now go home and sleep with Bathsheba. And the height of the deception was that he was ready to pass off his own son as Uriah's son. I mean, that's just evil. The boy would have been growing up, and David would know he's his son. Uriah will think he's his son. But Uriah was a noble man. Uriah said, at a time of war, I should go home and sleep with my wife, make love to her. No, when there are soldiers at the battlefront, absolutely not. I'm too noble for that. I would do no such thing. And so Uriah now sleeps at the gate of the king's house. By this time, the sin must give birth to multiple children. So David panics and sends for Joab. Joab is another kind of character. But there's no time to deal with Joab's character. Joab, Joab was something else. The man was chief of army staff. He was hard. Hard. He's the one who killed Absalom. He stabbed him three times. He, the man had, he, Joab just, he didn't, I mean, he was hard. So he sends for Joab and says to Joab, do me a favor. Send this man into the thick of battle the hottest part in the battle. And in the middle of that battle, withdraw everybody around him so the enemy will kill him. David committed murder. But you know the encouragement for you and I in the grace and forgiveness of God. This same David is the one that God said is a man after my own heart. How many know I have a chance and you have a chance? Go and give God a clap offering. And as we come towards the end, 
Let's establish one truth. The enemy cannot succeed without our cooperation. James 1 verse 13 to 15. When you're tempted, don't ever say God is tempting me, for God is incapable of being tempted by evil and he's never the source of temptation. Instead, somebody say with me, instead. Go and say it one more time. It is each person's own desires and thoughts that drag him into evil and lure them away into darkness. Evil desires give birth to evil actions, and when sin is fully mature, it can murder you. So what happens? The enemy has to put thoughts in our minds that will create evil thoughts. Those evil thoughts in our minds, those thoughts that are against God, those thoughts that are against who God says you are, must eventually bear fruit in evil actions, in wrong actions. And so the enemy got David onto the roof. And then the enemy put the thought in David when he saw Bathsheba that, why don't you sleep with her? Nobody will know. And David allowed the thought to bear fruit. The fruit was his action. He slept with her. And then it got worse and worse and worse. He can't succeed without our cooperation. So he needs an anchor in us, something that he can alight on. You see, this is the battle, how it works. He, he has to find somewhere to put his foot. If he can't put his foot anywhere, then it, he, he, can't, he cannot make you do what you don't want to do. He has to find somewhere to put his foot. The challenge he had with Jesus was that he couldn't find anywhere to put his foot. There was no desire in Jesus that was ungodly. Nothing that he could put his foot on. And as the Bible says in John 14 verse 13, Jesus says, He came, he has no claim in me, nothing in common with me, he has no power over me. The power that Satan has over you is what he can find in your heart to put his foot on. And we will learn later how it is possible by the blood of Jesus to make sure that you're cleansing your heart constantly so he finds nowhere to put anything. Can someone say amen? The world as it is, fallen, broken, and dysfunctional, has created many things in our hearts that are no fault of ours. It's just what I went through, just how I was brought up, just what I was exposed to, just the experiences I had. It's allowed certain things in my heart that allow the enemy to have a foothold. I have to get rid of those things so that I am like Jesus. The enemy came but found nothing. And as a result, he must lose this battle because he has no power over me. Can someone say amen? amen. Father, we thank you and we bless you. We glorify your name and exalt you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. Thank you for revelation that sets us free. Thank you for helping us to understand who we are in Christ. Help us to be able to say, I am so that no one else can say you are except it lines up with your word and with all heads bowed if there's anyone who hasn't given their life to jesus and you want to accept him as lord and savior with all heads bowed if you would slip your hand up wherever you are you want to give your life to jesus you want to accept him as lord and savior slip your hand up i would love to pray with you as you come back home to your father 
you come back home to your father you come back home to your father father we thank you and we bless you we give you all the praise help us father to rediscover who we are that we might be able to say i am because in saying i am we're declaring i am not not what the enemy says not what society says not what my past experiences say except they line up with your word we give you all the praise and all the glory in jesus name together we say amen amen rise to your feet as we make some declarations about who you are now these are not mere words these are opportunities for you to frame your world there's so much power in words that is said from a place of assurance and belief and in saying i am we are declaring to the enemy i am not amen so go on let's confess your identity one two go i am a child of god and today i receive my heavenly i receive the no let's say go back up back up one two go i am a child of god and today i receive the love my heavenly father has lavished on me i am the beloved of the lord he loves me with an everlasting love and with his unfailing love he has drawn me to himself I am a conqueror through Christ Jesus my Lord. I am successful wherever I go because my steps are directed and established by God. I am free from the baggage of my past. By your grace I do not remember the things that wounded me. Today I receive the new things you, O God, are doing in my life. I am restored and you, O Lord, have made me strong, firm and steadfast. I am delivered from all my troubles because you, O oh Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I am healed, made whole, and delivered from every destruction. I am able to do everything that God would have me do. I can do it. Go on, give God a clap offering. Go on. Go on, worship him for a minute with a clap offering. That's who you are. That's who you are. Just declare it. That's who you are. That's who he says you are. Father, we bless you. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen. Amen. Amen.